world's not as simple as it used to be. It's not enough to be a good guy anymore. We have to be the best. The time has come. All will be accounted for. Or we will hunt them. Stand up! It's time to be the heroes we were always meant to be! Gosh, we have been talking for 45 minutes and we haven't even started yet. We just got to dive right into it. No more no more segues. Hey, everybody, this is the Superhuman Registration Podcast. I am Steven. I am here with John and with Aldo. And we are here to talk about the second Civil War event in Marvel Comics. Civil War 2. Uh, I'm glad. East that- versus West. East versus West. <laughs> Kind of? Oh no! Wait, that's those were those were the rap battles of the nineties. Yeah, Civil War two, famously where Notorious B.I.G. and Spider Man faced off against Tupac and Wonder Man. <laughs> Man, Wonder Man was in this. No, was no, no, it was Blue Marvel. It's Blue Marvel. I don't know where Blue that Marvel's co- based out of. I only know Blue Marvel from the um, Marvel Snap game. On actually, yeah, as it turns out, he showed. Yeah, he showed up, and I was like, "Hey, it's that card I use." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> not not much anymore. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't either. I just closed the app. <clears throat> <laughs> I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to say something before we get started. Oh, of course, because this is, I mean, Civil War Two. Ten years after the first Civil War, they're back at it. Free Will faces off against determinism with no villain in sight, despite the fact that Doctor Doom is just out there being awesome as an antagonist. If we've learned anything in our time in uniform or as Avengers, it is not the future. It is not written. It can't be. I I did that all wrong. (laughs) Dang it. I'm also gonna say I think your your noise cancellation is like really kicking in because like I did not hear half of that oh. <laughs> because of the background music because I have um, <laughs> Ashikan farewell playing what it's oh, hopefully getting on the record. <laughs> if we've learned anything from our time in uniform or as Avengers, it is that the future it's not written, it can't be written, and that was my original problem with this new Inhuman this future-reading, fortune-telling vision maker, you can't see a future that hasn't happened yet. Time is a construct. Time is a concept. Time might be an organism that lives and breathes around us, and this kid, who we still don't know nearly enough about for my taste, he keeps having these visions of us. Between June and December 2016, major heroes in the Marvel Universe will clash. Two heroes will die. For now. From a time when we were still trying to make the humans happen, like the word fetch, this is Civil War II. I don't know whether to cry or snap. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, so I think we should start with the main event, right? If we're going to do the summary? Yeah, because our Kingpin story kind of, you know, hangs off of this on one. It. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a little dependent. Just a little. So, we read Civil War II, an event comic written by Brian Michael Bendis, with art by David Marquez, colors by Justin Ponzer, and letters by Clayton Cowles. 
Um, that said, there is a zero issue. Uh, same creative team, except instead of David Marquez, the art was by Olivier Coipel. Uh, so in the zero issue, Jennifer Walters is defending a supervillain in court. The villain is convicted, despite the fact that he hasn't actually committed any crimes since the last time he was in jail. And, you know, Jennifer Walters is really sad about that. And that kind of negates the entire moral argument that the event comic is going to follow. Because we get it hit pretty hard that preemptive justice is bad. But, I mean, we still have eight other issues to, to go through, so whatever. Uh, anyway, so the event kicks off when the Terrigen Mists descend upon this uh, college town. And this young man named Ulysses develops the ability to predict the future. In one of his visions, he sees this giant monster destroying New York. So he tips the Avengers off. The Avengers are able to save the day without any loss of life. Captain Marvel thinks this is pretty cool and decides that she wants to keep using Ulysses' visions to head off any major threats before they happen. She gets tipped off that Thanos is up to some mischief, so she puts together a team to take out Thanos, and Thanos winds up severely injuring She-Hulk and killing War Machine. This makes Captain Marvel, of course, very sad because she and War Machine had actually been dating at this point. I don't know if the event made it clear, but they had been dating before this. Oh. Of course, this also ticks off Iron Man, and Iron Man decides that now he's very against this whole infringing on people's basic human rights in the name of world peace thing. And so he takes this strong moral stand by kidnapping Ulysses, depriving him of his basic human rights, and torturing him. So, you know, that's how you know that Iron Man has the moral high ground in this story. Iron Man scans Ulysses' brain and takes a copy of it, and he learns that Ulysses' precognitive abilities are not actually foolproof. They predict a possible future, one that may or may not happen. This point is immediately illustrated by Carol Danvers and her team, arresting this woman who Ulysses saw in a vision was going to do something horrible, only for the woman to have absolutely zero ill intent, zero means of doing harm. So again, the, the whole sort of like moral argument of the story is completely undercut by the fact that you're not even administering precognitive justice. You're just using, you know, a faulty tarot deck. Ugh. Anyway... That's only halfway through the series. Uh, heroes keep fighting back and forth for a while. Apparently, the Hulk told Hawkeye to shoot him in the head if he ever started to lose his temper. And Hawkeye does that and then goes to trial and gets acquitted. Maybe this is supposed to be some sort of commentary on how people don't really care how the peace is kept as long as the peace is kept. But it's not really explored very much. Anyway, heroes keep fighting back and forth. Ulysses has another vision where his visions are getting more powerful, where they're starting to actually suck people in, and now other people around him are also seeing the visions at the same time that he does. And in the middle of this big superhero brawl, Ulysses has a vision of Miles Morales killing Steve Rogers on the steps of the Capitol. And because nobody can figure out why this event would happen, they all just kind of stop fighting in confusion and they just go home later on miles and steve show up on the steps of the capitol uh in what i am calling the ultimate game of i'm not touching you because they are very much tempting fate 
<laughs> While they're there, Captain Marvel shows up, uh, specifically trying to arrest someone for some reason. Then Ulysses has yet another vision, which is this weird sort of cul-de-sac. He tra- gets transported into the Old Man Logan universe, where Old Man Logan warns him that this story is probably not going to have a satisfying conclusion because there are too many sequel hooks to set up. And so Ulysses goes back to his regular world. The warning that Logan gave him doesn't make it to the group in time. Iron Man and Captain Marvel have one more big fight. Captain Marvel punches Iron Man so hard that he passes out and goes into like this pseudo coma forever. And Captain Marvel feels so bad about this that the president immediately just offers her the presidency of the United States. Hey, thank you for for getting rid of Tony Stark. I really hated that guy. Why don't you be president now? Um, And that's really it. Just right off the bat, I want to point out that the major difference between this story and the original Civil War is that it takes Civil War 1 around four issues before it decides to kill off its black character, but this book does it in issue 1. Anyway, with that out of the way, what did we all think of Civil War 2? Um, I do just want to point out a couple, like one thing is that Tony Stark wasn't against the the future telling after Rhodey got killed. He was against it kind of from the beginning due to at least as he presents kind of a lack of understanding of how the future visions are working. Uh-huh. I just want to throw that. Listen, I just want to throw the guy a bone, right? You don't. Need to also, it's kind of weird to have a book where Tony Stark is kind of the good guy. Kind it of. It really. It really made it hard for me the whole time because I was like, I, I'm not on his side. Because <laughs> from the first Civil War, he's definitely the antagonist. And, you know, I'm like, no, I don't want to be agreeing with him, but this is this is the side I'm on, you know. I uh, Did you all miss the part where he kidnapped and tortured a teenager? Yeah, oh, no. Still somehow the good guy, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, without consent, copied his brain onto a floppy disk. Yeah. Here's the thing. The only yeah. good guys, I think, in this story are all of the teen superheroes who we know from reading Champions. Their reaction to all of this is, you know what? Maybe grown-ups suck. Yeah. This makes me like that Champions book a little bit better, actually. Same. My my problem with this book... Well, I have a few problems. But <laughs> as a comic book nerd first, <clears throat> my biggest complaint with this book is the people taking sides don't make sense. Mm-hmm. Say what you will about Civil War One, which Stephen has plenty to say about that. <laughs> Don't I ever? <laughs> at least most, if not all, the people taking sides kind of made sense, or at least they had some sort of explanation. The fact that the Guardians of the Galaxy are in here because they had a successful pair of movies, and they're just here to help out a friend, and apparently, hey, helping out a friend means means beating up all these other heroes. Okay, whatever. What's a favor to between friends? Yeah. That doesn't necessarily like sit well with me. Like a lot of the stuff like a lot of who's on whose side doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense because a lot of it is also teens. Like it's not necessarily in the individuals. We get some individuals stating that they're not agreeing with it, primarily coming from the champions. And yeah, I I don't know. There's a lot of stuff that I just I don't know, that stuff just didn't gel well with me. It really did feel like, who's popular and who can we add in here? Yeah, that's that's how they were filling the team. 
more than very clearly, well, I know who, how everyone would feel about this issue. It was more like, well, let's just, uh, yeah, put this team on this side, this team on this side. And I was joking about it earlier, but like, you know, we're going to, we're going to throw the inhumans in the mix and make the, you know, um, you know, this kid an inhuman, uh, I, I, I still don't get the inhumans. Like, yeah. can yeah. anybody tell me like off the top of their head, what side Dr. Strange was on? He was on Iron Man. Tony's, I th- yeah, I think, yeah. Okay. Right? Okay, cool. All right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all right, just just, just checking, because that one felt a little weird. The fact not, that he got involved because... at all, because he, he very, like, you know, famously stayed out of the last one. Yeah. Well, also, also the fact that, like, you would think somebody with the abilities that he does would be a little bit more outspoken. And he's not really all that outspoken in here about it. That's also the thing is that apart from the core duo, which would be Iron Man and Captain Marvel, nobody really gets a chance to really be outspoken and voice their concerns and opinions. Yeah. So people kind of get to agree or disagree, but they don't really get to talk about why or, you know, how this maybe affects them. Like you would think, that young Cyclops would have a lot to say about this. Well, maybe he does in the, you know, X-Men issues, but right, but why not it's mention... It's not even hinted at in here. Yeah, yeah, hint, exactly. There should be some sort of reference to the bigger conversation going on with all of these individuals, it, but it's we don't get that at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. Like, I actually had a slightly different reaction to this than Aldo did because... In my mind, a lot of the uh, sides that people were taking made sense, like made a weird sort of sense. The only one that I had sort of a visceral, nah, that doesn't seem right response to was the thing. Because you see the thing fighting on Carol's side. And I'm like, no, that just does not sit right with me. Um, I had that thought initially because the X-Men, Storm in particular, I remember seeing on Carol's side. And my first thought was the X-Men's, like, one of their main stories that they keep going back to the well for is the time travel story where they see the dark future and they have to go in and, and like, try to prevent the dark future from happening. And they never really completely stop it, but they maybe shift things just a little bit. So they should know how malleable or like how difficult it is to actually change the future and how unreliable these sorts of things can be. But the more I thought about it, the more I came around to thinking, actually, if the X-Men thought that they could create a better world by, you know, tripping a kid in the street, they would definitely do it. X-Men have mm. no problem with the with the trolley problem. It's like, well, which no. one of these tracks kills the fewest mutants? That's the one we're going down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's also an aspect of the conversations happening that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And it wasn't even about the core struggle in here. I think for me in particular, I forgot which book it was. But it's when they have to fight on the Hellcarrier. Oh, right before the Miles Vision. Mm -hmm. Or I think right after it, uh, when a bunch of the girls are talking. And this really, this kind of feels like it was written by a man. And it was, was. um, (laughs) yeah, where we're like, they're talking, they're just kind of talking a little bit about the fight that just happened. And somebody brings up, you know, Black Panther and they're just, I can't believe you were ever married to that guy, like based off of the fight that they just had. And it's like, really, is that really what you think that they, they 
would be talking about right there. Yeah. I Okay. I would I thought it was odd that cuz this is not the first character with like precognitive powers, right? The X-Men have had Destiny who had journals that they refer to and saw, you know, the future or many futures. I'm not sure how how many times they use her specific, you know, information, but I know that it affects things in from Days of Future Past up until um, X-Men uh, Messiah Complex. And so why is it that this character with the ability to see the future is like, it's like it's coming out of nowhere. It's like, oh my goodness, the future. Oh, I can't believe it. This is a whole new thing we've never, ever done before. It's like we, you, you've, a lot of them have been to the future, you know? Like, why is it such a unique thing that's happening? I think the other thing for me is, and this one is kind of a, a complaint about the core of the story. I don't read a lot of Captain Marvel. The little bit that I have read, I have liked. But this feels a little out of character, right? It like, am, am I the only one that thinks? Yeah, she doesn't. She's not this stubborn, is she? They. I mean, I think she is that stubborn, but like, I think kind of her morals would be a little better like it doesn't feel like she would be that aggressive about doing this right off the, the bat and maybe there's stuff prior to this that's been leading up to this it sounds like there is some sort of stuff at least from like the first couple of issues but for her to get to the point where she is kind of capturing that or you know not kidnapping um well yes falsely arresting that woman and just for trying to force a reason I, I don't know that that was become in, in a book about super powered rock men. That was starting to really tell the line of believable for me. <laughs> it's, it's funny because it's like we spend a lot of time, especially you and me, although this is like one of our favorite games, trying to extrapolate from the information that we have. And it, like, what characters' political affiliations would be, that sort of thing, you know? Who would vote for Trump? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> On paper, Carol Danvers probably would be this sort of, like, very staunchly right-leaning authoritarian type. She's very stubborn. She's very, you know, hierarchy-oriented because she's a member of the military. She's, you know, got all of these sort of stereotypically right-leaning sorts of things, but she was most famously recently written by Kelly Sue DeConnick. She has historically been written pretty uh, heavily by Chris Claremont. Um, so it's yet another case of someone who is ostensibly very right-leaning being heavily written by an old lefty. And so... Again, on paper, I think a lot of Carol's stances make sense, but they don't really gel with the character as she was written. And then you get to the point that Carol's whole deal here is just blatantly violating folks' civil liberties, just unconscionably locking people up without cause the the it, it does not track it makes zero sense to me and it deeply frustrates me 
as, as someone who is a big fan of the character and has kind of felt the need to be defensive of her, especially ever since the Captain Marvel movie came out and was unfortunately kind of bad. I just, uh, it's so upsetting. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know that, that really kind of brought me the wrong way. It really felt like they needed to make her a villain. Yeah. Or, you know, they, she really needed to be the antithesis to, to, to this stuff. And I don't know. It just didn't, it just didn't jive with me. Mm-hmm. Tony Stark stuff kind of makes sense. I feel like it would have been a little bit more believable to switch the roles, honestly. And have Tony Stark be the person who is really gun ho about you know preventing the future, and you know maybe maybe he's you know running the calculations, he's trying to figure out how it works, but in the meantime, but in the meantime, you know he's like, no, this is what it takes. I'm gonna put a shield around the world. Um, yeah, I think Marvel was aware of how negatively Tony's role in uh the first civil war has kind of been taken and they were trying to avoid that they were trying to maybe rehabilitate the character that's the that's the sense that i got i think it's pretty explicit in the conversation that he has in that bunker where he's like hey captain the last time there was a civil war you and i fought and i learned not to be against you (laughs) so i don't i don't think you're extrapolating from nothing there but now am i mistaken in thinking that this is actually a lead into secret empire and this is actually hydra cap spoilers it is okay because i think that's how the whole um miles killing cap on the steps of the capitol building like i think that's how that's supposed to pay off if you don't mind me giving away a bit of a spoiler on that i did read like the post issue that's advertised at the end of issue eight oh most because i was curious yeah yeah and it's that that issue is just a big advertisement for that secret empire it is it is captain america going to talk to tony who's in his weird cyber coffin and it's a really big speech. Like the whole book is kind of just a big speech by, by him as he's talking to you know you think his friend is, but the way he starts addressing some of the way like the way that Tony handled a lot of this kind of feels like it doesn't seem like you actually know your friend here, bud. And then towards the end, it's kind of revealed that his vision is like a fascist vision of America, and then it's like secret empire coming out in six months or whatever. So, yes, yes, it very much is. It very much does lead into Secret Empire later. Well, okay then, mystery solved. So I don't think this book was all bad. Um, I didn't, cannot, I, sorry, I'm just flipping through my notes and I flipped past the page where, where Tony Stark is torturing the kid and it's like, no, uh, no. Also, oh, okay, so we mentioned Blue Marvel earlier there's one line that blue marvel has where he's got luke cage in a chokehold and he's like does the fact that i hold a phd in theoretical physics and a master's degree in electrical engineering from cornell give you any pause to consider that maybe you are on the wrong side of this and i'm like shut up what's that what's that guy from the office who always brags about being from yeah andy yeah 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 don't do that you are you were Supposedly better than Andy. You're not making me want to read your book, Blue Marvel. Uh, yeah. Just, that's a very Jordan Peterson move. 
You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Yeah, that I was like, oh, this is why you're not in more books. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I hear the book that he was most recently in was actually one of the lead-ins to this story, the the Ultimates. But this is like the mainline universe version of the Ultimates. Ultimates, where, yeah. Yeah, Captain Marvel and Blue Marvel and uh, I think America Chavez is on that team. There's a bunch of other like really powerful folks are using their abilities to combat universe-destroying threats. It's It kind of seeds this idea that Captain Marvel wants to stop bad things from happening before they happen. And mm-hmm. she like has all of this power and this potential that she leverages to do that. And it's supposed to be good. We should read it someday. Yeah. Um, makes me curious about the Blue Marvel character. This book does not paint him in a good light. Ugh. No, it does not. Yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff in here that I'm just... I don't know. I'm very mixed on... You know, I think talking about the negatives, I kind of already mentioned, at least for me, the teams didn't really feel all that... Like, actually, narratively, like, involved. At least from, you know, my reading. Captain Marvel felt very forced to be the bad person here. The, the antagonist. And... Yeah, but like I think out of the good stuff that I like in here is I do like that, you know, they do go to court. Like that is I thought that was a very not like a super like interesting thing, but it was nice to see like that actually happening and kind of the effects of that like a little bit. And yeah, I don't know. I think the the fights were cool. Like they they were energetic. There was a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, never mind. I don't have that much. I don't have that much good to say about it. Actually, turns out <laughs> it is very hard for me to to decide, and I don't have to decide this yet if I like this story better or worse than the first Civil War, because I think this story it offends me less, and I think it's in part because the only character who's really sabotaged is Carol Danvers. But I really like Carol Danvers. The fights are fine. The art is pretty good. Bendis, even at his worst, is still an entertaining writer. Yeah. Um, although that line about, I can't believe you were married to him, that was pretty bad. Um, but the story kind of doesn't go anywhere. Civil War, for all of its faults, the original Civil War, sets up a really fun playground. The, the Superhuman Registration Act leads to some really fun stories leads to some really good stuff. The post-Civil War status quo in the Marvel Universe is interesting. The post-Civil War II status quo is the same, except for Iron Man's not around. Yeah. It's, it's not that different. Not, and even the character Ulysses, you know, they introduce his character with these powers that have massive implications for what could happen in the Marvel Universe Eternity snatches him up, and he's gone. To my knowledge, this is the only time Ulysses has ever appeared. He's just was gone. It, oh, did I did I read that too fast? Because I, I thought that was the Watcher or a Watcher. It's it's Eternity. Uh, it's same thing okay. though. Big cosmic dude snatches him out and says, "You're you're better than this," and he's just gone. Mm-hmm. Super lame, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah, that feels like a little bit of a cop out. It does, and and so it's deeply disappointing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a couple things I think specifically that I thought were interesting or that I don't know bugged me in a different way. One, I mean, like John was mentioning, right? Like this character comes along with precognitive powers, which is not new to the world, but we don't really 
talk a lot about like his powers. Like the only person who seems concerned about how they work and how they're evolving really seems to be Tony Stark. Not even the Inhumans are kind of indifferent about it. The Inhumans are just like, oh, he's he's a growing boy. He just needs his milk. <laughs> but Tony Stark's the only one who's like, this is an algorithm. This is an algorithm based on him absorbing the energies of people that are around him. And the amount of energy that he's absorbing is increasing, as well as the strength and kind of who gets to experience these things. And, you know, granted with that, it's it's muddying up the water. So, like, you know, the amount of, like, energy of people that he's absorbing and everybody else is like, uh-huh. Anyways, let's, let's throw hands. Yeah. And, yeah, and it also, yeah, the other thing I don't like about Carol Danvers' personification here, and maybe it is true to the character, is how every time she kind of gets into one of these situations... She is so quick to like arrest, like very aggressively, that she's the one who's kind of making these situations worse, right? Especially like kind of with the Bruce Banner thing. But also, okay, everybody handled the Bruce Banner situation terribly. Like you have the Hulk, you know what, like what that is, and like what triggers that type of stuff, and so you're gonna like bring him out to a field in front of everybody and accuse him of stuff and not give him a chance to talk or explain himself or even explain to him like what's going on and carol danvers is immediately like come with us we're not gonna arrest you wink wink but hey we need to arrest you and and like yeah like of course that would be a very triggering situation for him of course like anybody would be uh and stuff like that and also like when she goes to go pick up um when she goes to pick up Miles Morales, who's just sitting on the steps of the Capitol, he's hanging out with Captain America, you know, playing the most intense game of I'm not touching you, like you said. <laughs> yeah. And she shows up and she's like, all right, boy. All right, buddy. We're going to we're here to arrest you. Come on. <laughs> and, you know, granted, also Tony Stark not really responding super well by like, hey, how would you like this? Uh, the shield? Hey, b- huh? Nobody can touch you. Um. <laughs> So, like, I, I don't know. It just felt like it felt like her approach to everything was kind of almost objectively making everything worse. Mm-hmm. And not that Tony Stark was helping as the counter to any of this. So, yeah, I, I think I think Civil War One executes on that idea a little better, right? Where you have Tony's side kind of aggressively arresting heroes, right? And... For the most part, if I remember, Captain America is trying to talk these situations down. He's trying to defuse them before ultimately fighting. And that doesn't really happen here. So both people are coming at this very aggressively, very, like, bluntly. And I, I don't know. It just didn't feel... It just didn't feel as organic or as true to the characters as Civil War One. With its many faults, I think Civil War One at least felt somewhat organic in its setup and kind of it's a kind of a bit of a, a execution. Yeah. I think it doesn't help that Civil War Two I, I alluded to this in my summary multiple times, but I feel like it undercuts the philosophical question that it's trying to debate multiple times mm-hmm. by highlighting the fact that this is not the the 
predictor of the future. Like Ulysses' powers are not as as solid a prediction of the future as yeah. uh, Carol initially believes. But the question that it moves on to is also an interesting question, and heck, a far more uh, relevant question than the idea of if you could stop Hitler from being a bad guy, but you had to eat a baby to do it, would you do that? You know, that sort of kind of silly question that the book opens with, it moves on to, well, how much power should we give algorithms to control our lives? Right? Because if if yeah. if Ulysses' power is really an algorithm to predict the future, well, right now, we live in systems that are governed by algorithms. That question is very pertinent. But that question mm-hmm. doesn't get explored either. It gets explored, like, just a little bit. Which, with some of the basic things, like Tony Stark, before he realizes it's an algorithm, right? He's asking for, like, bias. He's looking into this person's personal history with his family and all this stuff right which is kind of what we need to do with algorithms like talking about right examine the biases under yeah. which they're constructed and all of that of course tony stark is having that conversation while he's torturing a teenager so yes it's, yes that's it's, not yeah. bad. it's pretty bad uh, mm-hmm. yeah yeah so th- there's some interesting ideas here that could have been explored better i think the execution of this book could have been better yeah, it's I'm I'm kind of with you on on it where I don't know if I like this more or less than Civil War 1. On one hand, the philosophical questions I think are just as interesting as Civil War 1, right? The whole pre- uh, registration or not versus able to predict the future or not. And while Civil War 1 may have been, uh, you know, to Stephen it was an offensive book. It's this book feels in a <laughs> Yeah, this book feels inoffensive in kind of a bad way. <laughs> like, it just doesn't... It doesn't take a, a strong enough stand on anything to... Yeah. ...push back again, you know? Yeah. At the end at the end of the book, it doesn't really leave you with, like, a question of, like, who was right or wrong? It just... You, you kind of know who was wrong. Like, the, mm-hmm. like Stephen said, the book kind of goes out of its way to tell you a few times, yeah, this whole future thing is wrong... Has nobody in the Marvel Universe seen Minority Report? <laughs> like, Seriously. Yeah, you would think Tony Stark would have at least made one Minority Report reference, but no. Um, they, it's worth noting that this, they, the prep for this was pretty quick. Um, they decided at a Marvel retreat with uh, some editors to do this event, and um, I think it, they only had... Uh, let's see. At, yeah, it was at this a, retreat, does, does yeah. it say if at that retreat they all watched Minority Report? Doesn't say. <laughs> <laughs> Most, you know, major comic book storylines take years of planning. Um, Brian Michael Bendis had three to four months. And this is after, you know, he, he was going to turn it down. He only accept, he only agreed to write the sequel after Mark Millar and Steve McNiven uh, turned it down. They were the ones who did Civil War in 2006 mm. so this is we want to do another one and that that I think you know might explain why it's like well we have these two uh, uh, viewpoints and who we're going to have to go let's get our popular up and coming character ready and uh, go that's why we have you know Carol Danvers taking a stand uh, where 
I don't, yeah, it's like forced into this yeah. this unpopular position. I yeah, doesn't doesn't feel yeah. Yeah, I will say, you know, you mentioned the previous artistic theme and Steve, is it McNiven or is it Steve Niven? I think it's McNiven, Steve right? McNiven. Yeah, yeah, Steve McNiven's art in the first Civil War, really great. Right, no complaints. I love David Marquez. I think for me, David Marquez is one of those. I don't know if how new of an artist he is or how new he is to Marvel, but man, I am really digging his art. I think solid proportions, uh, whoever his colorist team is really great job with the colors. I think just, I think all around just a super solid artist. I just wanted to throw that out there because we've been talking so much smack on the book and David Marquez's art was a bright point. Yeah. I wanted to make sure that we did, you know, shout that out because it was it was consistently good throughout, um, and you know, gave me something to look forward to. I, I felt like I was reading through this quickly, and then I was you know following the plot and going okay, okay, but still lost in the in the well. Why are they taking this stance? Why is this happening? Why are these characters involved? What do they think? Why are they on this side? You know, there were a lot of those kind of. You know, I understand what's going on, but why did it fall out this way? You know, it's, you know, but the art, uh, terrific throughout. So, yeah, I am kind of interested to see David Marquez's art on a smaller group and also to kind of see their fight choreography. Because I, you know, I, I feel like we didn't really get a whole lot of opportunity to really kind of see it on display here. We get a lot of really big battles, but we don't really get to see a lot of the, you know, like play-by-play of a fight that we typically get in a smaller book. True enough. Marquez has apparently been working on some of the Ultimate Spider-Man comics. Oh. Oh, and he was working on Invincible Iron Man. That's where I recognize the art from. Yeah, so when they relaunched uh, Iron Man, I think after... No, it was not after Secret War. Anyways, there was like a small reboot that they did, which is when he hires Mary Jane Watson as his assistant, which she shows up in this book as his assistant. Um, He was the primary artist on like the first six issues of that, so... That was 2015... Uh, it keeps directing me just... I'm trying to, like, look up that those issues in uh, Wikipedia here under his bibliography because um, I, re- I really enjoyed his work. And I'm looks like he's worked with Brian Michael Bendis a lot. Um, but I don't... It keeps taking me just to the general Iron Man page. I don't remember what happens in Invincible Iron Man when he comes... Is this when he comes back from a coma? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I think it predates this because the, the cover at the beginning of the issue always shows Mary Jane Watson as working for Iron Man. Yeah, it looks like that was the year before this came out. So, And then they followed it up. He, he worked on the, the Defenders after this. Um, so that's cool. Also, I will say, since we're talking about the art, and those are some pretty great covers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was good. Ponser's good. Ponser was really good. I think it's time to move on. Sure. Well, good news. We have another story. Yeah. yeah. Let's do it. Um, while all this is happening, meanwhile, back in New York, um, the Kingpin 
at this point in Marvel history has been running San Francisco, the crime out in San Francisco, and he comes back to New York and he wants to kind of go back into his um, his role as the kingpin and, and run all of crime in New York, but um, everyone else, all the other smaller crime bosses are afraid because they keep getting shut down um, by Ulysses. Um, he's given um, the superhero community enough to go on, I guess, to to shut all of them down, and then um, Kingpin gets... Is this Janice or Yanis, do we think? Because it does not say... I, I can't tell one way or the other. I pronounce it Janice in my head. But... Janice? I'll just say Janice yeah, for consistency. I was, I was saying Janice. Janice? Okay. Because I'm 13. <laughs> <laughs> So Jay Hole is his um, right hand man. <laughs> I hate you. He uh, is an inhuman as well, and his power seems to just be to negate powers, and they are able to operate under um, under the radar, as it were. And so he kind of is training him up to be his like protege, and um, he. Uh, gets confronted by some heroes. He gets he gets in a fight with um, some villains and and uh, Kingpin. They show him multiple times getting severely wounded in here, and still pulling through. Um, it's it's cool to see how resilient he is as just a normal dude uh, among all these super powered individuals. So he um, uh, has his. Uh, building gets blown up and then the Punisher comes after him for a whole issue. The fight ends with, uh, him, um, being arrested and saved by shield shield saves his life because he got a knife in his chest from uh, Punisher still fought him and, uh, um, just barely survives. And so while he's going through rehabilitation, um, he is able to coordinate, um, um, a, take over um, through Janice um, uh, of taking out his rivals and um, getting back into a position of power um, it's reported that he's dead and I really love this panel showing the reactions of many um, you know uh, different characters that are familiar with Kingpin like Matt Murdock has to like pause in court and you know Punisher who's just hey think you know they just finished fighting and he's you know bandaged up and and bruised but you know it gives him a little chuckle um bullseye is just eating his cereal does not care (laughs) you know um so he is helping shield um while he's you know coordinating you know taking down his rivals he's giving shield information to kind of you know clear out some of the competition um but he was he's he's arrested illegally by just one shield agent who's out for revenge and he's able to kind of clean things up and then just walk away after they've helped him uh, rehabilitate. And he comes back to find that uh, Janice has tried to take his place as Kingpin kind of under the guise of, I'm just, I'm just keeping your legacy going. But then uh, Kingpin kills all the men that Janice has assembled and um, holds Janice out of a window. And he says, no, no, you'll, they're, they're going to be able to catch you if you don't have me. And he just draw, lets him drop and says, let them come. Um, I think we get Kingpin at his best here. 
um, being able to find a way out of any any tricky situation. Um, I I thought this was fun. This was a good read after you know going through Civil War and going like, oh, what's the motivate? Like this was very clear. Like the Kingpin's coming back. He's going to take over, and we got to sit by and watch him do it. What did you guys think? I dug it. Whew. <laughs> I, yeah. I've started using Goodreads a little bit more to track my comics reading. Uh-huh. Yeah, Goodreads users did not like this book. They all thought the art was ugly. They were like, oh, it's just another Kingpin story where he fights the Punisher. And I don't know, maybe there are a lot of Kingpin stories where he fights the Punisher and they are all kind of like this. I liked this story quite a bit. I liked the art. It was definitely not what I'm used to seeing from a Marvel comic, but it reminds me a little bit of uh, an artist, uh, Paul Pope, who uh, I think most famously did a story for DC Comics called Batman Year 100. It was all about like this sort of future Batman in an authoritarian state, which is a, another story that they've done to death. But Pope's art style is very fluid, very fun, very uh, organic. And this this book I thought was very similar. Loved the art, loved it. Uh, love seeing superhero stories that do different things with with artwork. And so, yeah, kudos, creative team. That I don't think I don't think I know these creators. Did we did we cover them? Oh, I'm sorry. No, I had them in front of me here. Um, this was written by Matthew Rosenberg, and artist was Ricardo Lopez Ortiz. Um, in the last issue, it looks like we also get Hayden Sherman. Um, uh, letterers, uh, VCs, Travis Lanham. And, um, yeah, we just get artists, so we don't have a separate inker yeah. listed. Color, colors are by Matt Lopez. Oh, thank you. I'm, uh, I, like, went right over that line. Yeah. yeah. It's with an S, so I don't know if it's Lopes or Lopez. I've never heard the last name Lopes, so I was going to guess Lopez, but anyway. Um... Yeah, I, I at first I was like, "Ew, this is ugly art." And the more I read it, the more I was like, "This is this is right for this story. Mm-hmm. Like this works for this story." The uh, moments where you know um, the the faces and the anatomy is just off. Like it's this is it felt like this was a stylistic choice and not like a deficiency in the artist this was we're telling this rough you know street level thug story and it's going to be gritty and ugly and deal with it you know i i dug it john i know you're a much better parent than what i'm about to make you out to be (laughs) but every time we talk about art in these books well not every time but sometimes when we talk about art I imagine, like, your child bringing to you, like, some sort of crayon drawing they, they did, <laughs> and they hand it to you, you're just like, ugh, the anatomy's all off, the colors are not right. What is this? Is this supposed to be a face? What is this, AI? How many fingers do you think I have? Yeah, yeah five. Do I look, Try do I, it again. Do I, do I look like a toilet? Why are you handing me this crap? <laughs> I know you're I'm not as tall like as the sky. My head is two inches from the sun. What's the matter with you? <laughs> You call that a house? You call that a house? That's oh, to... that's our job? We don't have a chimney? Pull your head out. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah? You want to use orange for everything? No. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I, and 
Thank you, because I do, <laughs> I do, I do try to. Because my my uh, daughter actually, like you know, has drawn um, several portraits this week of our family, and they're up in the hallway. She just taped them up, and and positioned them nicely, so she has like, you know, my love of drawing and my wife's eye for like you know interior design and the right way to you know display your art in your home and uh, it's not bad for her age and uh yeah um i encourage that because it has gotten better from you know even like a year ago so um since she's not a professional i can do that without saying like what are you what are you turning in this stuff for these are your pages you gotta get your anatomy straight you're a professional so. He'll never go anywhere with this art. Yeah. If you can yeah. call it that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I will say I like this book. It was fun. I think the thing I enjoyed a lot about this, or the part in specific that I liked a lot about this, was after he gets out of the whole shield thing, the kingpin gets out of the whole shield thing, and he's looking for, for Janus. Janus however we want to pronounce it. Janus. He's talking about how he wants his men to bring him in alive. And they're like, why? He like betrayed you. He might he might be betraying you. And he's like, Janice is a person that I care cared for. And because they had like a real kind of genuine bonding experience. And again, I think the Kingpin, based on who's writing him, but pretty consistently, is a very interesting character with death. That doesn't always need to be explored, but when it is explored, it's for at least for me, it's pretty welcome. Mm-hmm. And he's not just like a kingpin, right? Like I don't know how much of his like speeches about giving control back to like the normal, the you know, the human man in in a world of superheroes is true. I don't know how much of that is like a genuine like Sleuther thing. And frankly, I don't actually care to know. Because it's more interesting kind of not knowing how genuine that is or isn't. But he has, he tends to have like real human connections with people. Uh, And, you know, not necessarily his henchmen. I think a lot of the time his henchmen are just that. They're just his henchmen and there's some that he trusts at different levels. But to see that he had like that genuine kind of connection with Janus when he was, you know, uh, sheltering him. And the anger that comes from that betrayal, I think, is so, so good to see. If I'm remembering the story correctly, we don't ever know for sure that Janus betrays Kingpin, right? Kingpin believes so. Calls him a traitor. He definitely steps in and takes over when Kingpin is out of action. And emulates him. And emulates Mm -hmm. him, dresses like him. Yeah, but he doesn't, like, take over. This is not, I am now the kingpin of crime because I set up that car bomb or I did all of these things. Like, the Punisher is the one who set up the car bomb. He does say, like, will you, to the other crime bosses, will you accept me as your new kingpin? But it's because he wants to continue the legacy of Wilson Fisk. Or at least that's what he says. That's what he says. I think it's, a, yeah. is, I think it's ambiguous. I don't think we actually know. Which I think makes the, the story arc even stronger for Wilson Fisk, the kingpin. Because he cares about Janus, but refuses to... Like, the minute he gets the suspicion that Janus betrayed him, it's over. 
and Kingpin stops at nothing to take him down, to just destroy him. It's pretty um, great. Like, this to me does not read like a Marvel comic. This reads like a noir crime comic, almost. Like, this is something that I could see Ed Brubaker writing for Image rather than a Marvel comic, which is, I think, one of the things that makes it so compelling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This this could be a Francis or Coppola. <laughs> right? It's the I, actually, like, genuinely. But yeah, you, you really could. I mean, just be, with the, I mean, if you took out the scene where Captain Marvel, or, uh, sorry, Blue Marvel and Spectrum, and actually, I think Captain Marvel... It's Captain America. It's it's Falcon Cap. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, listen, if you just took out the scene where, like, the superheroes arrive, like, it does read, like, kind of like a straight, you know, kind of crime mm-hmm. drama thriller type thing. Yeah. I mean, you can keep the, the Punisher in there, right? And it still fits because that's kind of where the Punisher kind of fits. Yeah. I Yeah, I thought this was well done. I think this was a fantastic four issues to read. And it does something that I think Civil War II kind of promises, but doesn't really deliver on. And that is, it sets up this sort of interesting playground. So Civil War II is dealing with the, uh, you know, super criminals, or the superheroes are stopping crime before they happen. Well, what does that mean for the criminals? Well, the criminals are all kind of on the run and in hiding because they never know when they're going to get arrested just for whatever. But... The kingpin finds this this inhuman who has the ability to shield him from uh, Ulysses' precognitive abilities, and he takes advantage of that to reset his status in the underworld. But at the end of the day, that's just the background. That's the set dressing. That's the stuff that says, okay, this is the high concept. Now let's explore the human story. Because really, it could have been just about anything that endeared Janus to the Kingpin. The point was, Kingpin took this low-level enforcer, one who he probably would not have respected in other contexts, loves the enforcer as long as the enforcer is useful to him. And I mean loves. Like, Kingpin cares for this man, personally (laughs) nurses him back to health. And then the minute that he suspects that that man turned on him... It's all over. It's just violence and death the rest of the book. And that's fascinating. It's just, Kingpin is, I I think we say this almost every time we read a story with the Kingpin in it. He has got to be one of the best villains Marvel has. Absolutely. Genuinely, yeah. And I think what's interesting is that when they introduced uh, Janus and his powers, it felt a little, like, a little deus ex machina-ish. Is like, oh, this this inhuman with the ability to have, you know, to be a, pre, a precog shows up. And, oh, hey, we just have to have another inhuman who is like an anti-precog <laughs> ability, right? Like, yeah. wow, super creative. Who, wow, who thought? It? But the fact that, like, this is a story, you know, like you said, it's a human story about kind of this relationship. I think made me not even care about that, you know, that coincidence. Yeah. We start with the coincidence. The coincidence doesn't get mm-hmm. us out of trouble. It gets us into the story. That to me is an yeah. acceptable use of a, of a coincidence. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And honestly, I did, 
honestly, in that first issue, I was like, all right, this is probably not going to be as good as I was hoping. And no, it was much, much better. Yeah. And kind of to your point about him not respecting him, they meet because he's he's been trafficking women. He's right. been kidnapping women, trafficking, and that's apparently one of the th- one of the lines that the kingpin has, where he doesn't do that. He doesn't deal with that, which again kind of leads to that ambiguity of like how genuine is kingpin's thoughts and emotions about like the, the, you know the superheroes and kind of this authority authoritarian state that heroes can ultimately create right like how much of that is genuine because he does and and, you know it's told to us over and over by different characters and different stories that the kingpin does care about his community he cares about the people living in new york like he does help out with like the little man which we see in this you know we (laughs) see he has helped the family of this coffee shop owner and you know like asks to help him more and and so he's definitely a villain but then you're like there is a whole side to him that what what would it be like if you ran a business you know just on the you know uh some intersection in new york that constantly got hit by superhero attacks and no one's doing a thing for you except for the kingpin who shows up himself with you know two by fours and some nails and a hammer like hey let's uh let's get this room fixed up and get you back running business again you know like it's interesting you're living in a world where there is a cataclysmic world of an ending event at least once a month. <laughs> Do the police really care about you? <laughs> like, yeah, right. I'm trying to decide which my favorite panel is. Uh, I think these are both in issue two. I might be wrong about that. My favorite panel is either the one where Janus has just killed a man and is washing his hands and the kingpin comes in behind him and like holds his hands and sticks them under the water. And like, it's this almost like Jesus washing the feet of his disciples moment. Uh, Mm. Just really well illustrated, fits really well within the context of the story. It's either that or it's Hawkeye picking up coffee and just pouring in sugar. And the sound effect just says sugar, 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 sugar. (laughs) I'm not sure which is my favorite. They're both good. See, that's funny, because I also have two panels that I'm not sure which is my favorite. Uh, the first one being, I don't, it's the scene where the Punisher is falling out of the window, and he's hanging on by the knife, the 10-inch knife that he stuck inside of the kingpin, which is ugh, gruesome to think about, but yeah. a kind, of a, a, kind of a really good moment. Or the part where they go into the poker room and there's a picture of Launch from Dragon Ball Z on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, this book is actually really good. Um, I like, speaking of the poker scene, I like that we get a moment similar to The Dark Knight where he, you know, drops a, the, the Joker drops a busted pool cue. Um, there are, you know, he's like, we only got one opening and the guys have to fight to the death for it. And it hints that I'm like, okay, we've seen this before, but it turns out he gives them a, uh, unloaded gun and, uh, you know, the guys, the guys figure out, oh, we could just shoot the kingpin, but it's not loaded. So they, he finds out who would try to kill him. So he's just like, okay, kill him. So rather than, you know, doing that same bit we've seen before in, you know, a very famous movie, we get yeah. to see how the Kingpin reacts to a situation where, like, yeah, don't don't have your, your henchmen fight and give put them in a position to kill you. 
you know, see who would kill you and then kill them. So, um, I really liked when he's confronting Janice at the in the fourth issue, where the uh, he's breaking into the door and Janice is on one side of the door arguing with him, and you know he has his side is all like. Um, warm colors and kind of he's you know enraged and Yanis is scared and in the dark in the room next to him and just these parallels where he's like you know I was just trying to help and he's like nope you're a traitor and you are dead so yeah. so I'm looking at that page again where where uh, Kingpin is washing Janus's hands for him and it's really uh-huh. interesting because what the Kingpin is doing here is trying to persuade Janus that his violent actions are necessary because there's currently a power vacuum. And he says, a lack of power, the lack of a pecking order, it bothers them in their minds. It creates a vacuum. Nature abhors a vacuum. It's really easy to draw a line directly from that comment to Janus in the final issue, wearing a white suit and purple shirt and sitting in the kingpin's chair, right? It's like Janus feels like he's being groomed. And that's not what's actually happening, but it kind of is. It just, it, oh man, I I don't think this story is perfect. Um, I have like one or two uh, issues with it, specifically with the pacing and with the structure of the story. It shifts back and forth in time a little bit in a way that's not intuitive and it's not as clearly telegraphed as I would like it to be, especially the first two issues are a little bit tough to follow. Yeah. But that's it. Um, I, I, I think overall, this is a surprisingly solid story. Yeah. A, a lot better than I was expecting. And I wasn't sure what to expect other than I was hoping for a real solid not even great or good, but like just a real solid Kingpin story, and I, boy, delivered at least for me, it did. It was a relief because you know some of the tie-ins to big events are hit and miss. I wonder. Um, so, when you watch The Simpsons every year, they do a Halloween special, and some of my favorite bits are from those specials, where instead of one episode, it's three smaller stories in the same amount of time. And so there's not a lot of time for anything else. It's mostly just joke, 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 because they don't have time to, you know, build other moments or, or to give a lot of backstory, whatever's happening. It's just real quick into the jokes. I wonder if um, the same thing happens when we're, we're, you know, this is just a four-issue story. You know, this isn't like padded out to six issues to make for a nice, um, you know, trade paperback this kind of just tells its story and, and we kind of get back to a status quo with the Kingpin, um, but doesn't in such a way that it's, it's not just like we wanted to put the Kingpin back in New York. It takes the current event and inserts him in such an interesting way where it's, it's like, what would happen if we threw the Kingpin up against what's, what's going on with the, uh, you know, inhumans in this civil war situation? Like how would he deal with that? We want to put him back in New York now, for whatever reason, um, you know, we're done in San Francisco. Um, I, I like that it's just short. It's just four issues. We get just enough. We get in, we get out. And, um, you know, not a, lot of, not a lot of fat on this steak. Ironically, considering there's a lot of fat on the kingpin. It's hey. muscle. <laughs>
Yeah, I will except say if you I... read the Runaways, where he's like mm, chocolate. Like they have, they have a couple <laughs> panels where he's just eating. Oh yeah, I will say one of my favorite traits of the Kingpin, and it happens a couple times here, is just his ability to just kind of stand face to face with a bunch of heroes. And if he is nervous or scared, he absolutely does not show it. And we as an audience don't even get a hint that he might be, you know, scared or or nervous. But he was staring down three, like, actually powerful superheroes and just not budging at all. And I think that is so, that is so interesting. It's just really well done. Top five Marvel villains, potentially top five supervillains. Yeah, like honestly. really, he's he's on par with characters like Lex Luthor, and he's not as good as the Joker, except in as much as like the Joker kind of loses some appeal because he's so overexposed. Kingpin yeah. doesn't have that, so maybe that puts him on par with the Joker. I don't know who would be the top, like Joker, Doom, Lex Luthor. Kingpin. Who else? Like Green Goblin or I would, I would, Magneto? I mean, I'm, I'm a Spider-Man simp, so of course I would throw in Green <laughs> Goblin in there. I would, I would say like the Sentinels or whatever, you know. Yeah, but that's because Free I'm, Age I'm of a, X Magneto. I would agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Magneto, like even when he's a bad guy, it's still like, well, here's a point. So. Yeah. Well, we can't beat up the Holocaust survivor. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy! Gosh, um, <laughs> should we rank these stories? Yeah, probably. I'm, I want to know uh, what love is. I want to know what love is. <laughs> I want you to show me. I've made. I started making a playlist uh, on Spotify that I'm calling Bradioki. It's songs that I could actually <laughs> sing at karaoke. <laughs> I'd be interested to see that list. I bet it's really impressive. I would be as well. It has an unfortunate amount of Matchbox 20 on it. Anyway, so... You can't help when you grow up. (laughs) What is your Matchbox 20 to Eminem ratio on this? I am not putting Eminem. I've got no hip-hop on my list. The one song that I might put on there, because I can do it, is Drop It Like It's Hot. Well, not all the words, but... Right, exactly. I I, I have a mirror. (laughs) You're not allowed. I, I <laughs> am not that full of caucasity. All right, so <laughs> currently on our list, we have 233 stories. Of those 233, Civil War is currently number 209. That is primarily due to the fact that I think it is just a rubbish bad story. I And so, yeah, I genuinely am not sure if I like this more or less than Civil War, the first one. Um, I actually kind of want to put it under Civil War. I, I'm I'm pretty sure that I'm going to get outvoted on this. So I'm just going to tell you where I would put it, and then you guys can talk. Um, I would put this at number 210, just beneath the first Civil War. Because even as much as I don't like the first Civil War story, I don't like, you know, this embodiment of, of you know, white Aryan supremacy blowing a hole in... Uh, the black Goliath and then the giant black superhero getting buried in the ground in a tarp and chains. Like that imagery is just so loaded and so bad that I hate the whole story in as much as that is really bad. Civil war actually manages to deliver mostly on the questions that it asks. 
and sets up such a good status quo that I think it is more worth reading than Civil War II. So I would say that Civil War is actually a little bit better. But I don't think Civil War II is so aggressively bad that it goes significantly lower than that. That's what I would say. Let's, let's, where would you guys go? My initial instinct would be to rank it higher. Same. Because, than, than the original Civil War. Not because it's better than it, than the original Civil War, but because I think this original Civil War should have been a little higher. Not by much, but <laughs> still a little bit. But honestly, I think where Civil War One fails, this book doesn't fail as hard. But where Civil War One exceeds, this does not necessarily match it. So I would be okay reluctantly putting it right below Civil War One, just because I don't think it's better as a whole. I think it was an easier read. The art was better. The art in Civil War, I think, was fine. Um, so it's not like trashing it like that way. I, I don't know. I don't think it deserves to go that low just because the other Civil War was that low. And I'm looking at, you know, some of these other some of these other books in the 190s that I would rather read Civil War 2 again than some of these. Um, but I mean in a heartbeat I would put this above long shot. <laughs> oh. Well then I too will put it at I say 179. No, I say I would. But <laughs> Boy, the dynamic of this podcast sure has shifted since episode two, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it's only, I mean, actually has a few cents, but it's, but its biggest sin is having the name and being a sequel to the original Civil War, which is down that low. That's an interesting question. If this book wasn't called Civil War, if it had some other, like, fight the future or something, and the exact mm-hmm. same plot... Would I have as negative a response to it? I don't think you would. That's a really interesting question. I think you would have raised the question, why didn't they just call this Civil War II? But I don't think that you would be, you know, put against it as soon, you know. I think we all went into this going, you know, with with the negative bias, like, this is going to be bad. You know, not like, yeah. oh, this is well, this is an interesting take. Oh, we're these two different opposing viewpoints, you know. Avengers, the precognitive report. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I don't know. I kept trying to make ties to Terminator, like no fate but what you make. And it just, get, it was, it was yeah, more minority report oh, than Terminator. Yeah. So. Civil, yeah, Civil War Two. I'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> this time is more, is less civil, more war. Grab onto Lockjaw. No, get to the helicopter. That's better than mine. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Doctor Strange. I'm I'm not the Marvel, I'm Spectrum. (laughs) (laughs) Who's your daddy? And what is he going to do tomorrow? Do we need to arrest him? I can't believe you were married to that man, Aurora. <laughs> I'll stop that. Okay. Arnold Schwarzenegger saying Aurora is, is the worst thing I've ever heard. Aurora. 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 
I have to do like a growl at, my, at the start of a sentence when I do the Schwarzenegger voice or else the rest doesn't carry through. Granted, I don't think any of it is good, but that's that's That's, that's what makes it good is that it's so bad. <laughs> that's why I use it all the time. Sometimes uh, sometimes I watch an Arnold Schwarzenegger interview. I'm like, oh, no, he really does talk like that. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> Someone burned him because he couldn't say California and he was the governor. Like, Cali- California, California. California. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so I'm, I'm okay with, with 210. Fine. Fine. I, I think the message here really is, well, at least from me, John has to reluctantly co-sign because he's been outvoted. The Civil War stories are not as good at, well, especially the first one. They're skippable. <laughs> yeah. You just have to know there was a fight, they disagreed, here were the sides that were drawn, and we move on to, you know, whatever's happening in the universe because of it. I generally believe that the comics are better than the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The one major exception is Civil War. Yeah. Captain America 3 is a better movie than Civil War is a comic. I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But... I don't know. I don't know if that's actually a controversial take or not. Anyway, so Civil War II Kingpin, it's much higher. It's better. It's a lot better. My initial thought for this is, and I'm kind of just going off a little bit of memory, is the Thor's storyline, at least as a starting point. I don't know how low that is. That's number 89, Thor's Battle World. Yeah. That's probably the ceiling, because it is very good, but we start to get into classic storylines, you know, that have kind of earned their place, at, at, you know, higher in the list than that. Um, it is very good. I think I was looking... Oh, that's that's a pretty good spot. Um, shoot. I'm looking at the final host. It's a Jason Aaron one, and I can't remember what what that... Who's the character in that? Uh, that's Ghost Rider, Robbie Reyes... Oh, the one where he takes over a giant celestial. Yeah, and it's yeah. That was, that was pretty dope. That was pretty be, dope. But it's still pretty good. Yeah, that was pretty metal though. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, what do you think, Stephen? This is kind of the neighborhood I'm thinking, but. So I think that it's good that you are tempering my enthusiasm a little bit, because my <laughs> first thought was to compare it to what if magic was the sorcerer supreme, because it's oh, yeah. this weird sort of like similar almost buried treasure comic that you never hear anybody talk about but it's surprisingly good and delivers on a on a well-constructed story in in a me in a book where you wouldn't really expect it um that said i don't think it goes quite that high i don't think that this really i don't know i'm looking down and it's like would i rather read this than Purple Daughter? Maybe. I think it's pretty comparable to a lot of these books that are in this area. And by this area, I'm apparently talking about between number 46 and number 76, which is where the final host was. Oh, I like, found my ceiling um, Kang Dynasty because that's, I don't know, that's just too big, too cool. I, okay. I couldn't put it above there. Well, if, if that's where we're looking... I would put this beneath Prisoners of Doom just because I think that the first appearance of Doctor Doom probably warrants a read before this one does. 
Hmm. Yeah, this is like yeah. a really good like character study, but I don't know that it's necessarily like required reading. It doesn't really have like I mean, if if that's if we're starting to look for reasons why it maybe doesn't go up so high, it's not necessarily required reading. It doesn't shake up the character in any significant way, and it doesn't necessarily introduce us to anything like new, like it's not an origin story, something like that. I think I think it's uh, like a hidden gem area. And we have a couple of, you know, villain comics Definitely. in here. We have a Mag- Magneto comic in here as well as the Doom. So I think this is a good spot. And um, yeah, I like I like that. Although it's not, not required reading, but I think once people understand the basics of, you know, the, the Marvel Comics universe, you can be like, okay, now I got something good for you. It's yeah. this, you know, sweet kingpin. Because I like to be just a little bit contrary, I would still rank this above Deadly Genesis. Yeah. I think Deadly Genesis is, is historically noteworthy, but it's also not as good as you want it to be. Because the X-Men aren't really the X-Men until Claremont shows up. So even though this establishes yeah. the team that Claremont would take to fame, it, it's not them. Um, That's but fair. Contrast that with you know, Prisoners of Doom, first appearance of Doctor Doom, that's just Doctor Doom. That's the same character yeah. that exists in 2023. And the canonical explanation of Marvel of who the identity of Blackbeard is. Correct, yes. <laughs> Never forget. <laughs> Super it was the thing. <laughs> Edward Teach? No, the thing. <laughs> My final vote would be for number 75, then. Yeah. 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 That's actually a little lower than I wanted to put this, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad spot. I'm weirdly high on this book. That's not much lower than what I was also thinking. I think I started out low because I thought it was comparable to that Thor's book. That Thor's book, to me, is still one of my favorite things to come out of this Yeah, I really liked that. Yeah, uh, just because I thought it was such a such an interesting concept, you know, because you have like this whole multiverse that's stuck in one world, and so somebody's killing off like the Jane Fosters. Like that was an interesting mystery to like explore. Boy, you want to talk about delivering on the high concept and setting up fun playgrounds for people to to tell stories in? Freaking Secret Wars did such a good job of that. Yeah, I think there's a real argument that Secret Wars is the best event comic. Yeah, no, I, I agree on that. The only one that I might try to hold above it would be uh, Final Crisis over at DC. But also Final Crisis is like deeply polarizing. I'm one of the, the people who really likes it, but that's not necessarily the popular opinion. So I probably would lose that argument. Yeah, I just, I just think for event comics, one, it's complete, right? Like you get a really well done in-depth story that doesn't require really any outside reading. And two, I th- it has such an interesting concept that it delivers. It really does deliver. And I think the ending for it is, is satisfying. I think a lot of the action that we get you know, in the middle is really good. And we get to explore the world just enough that you're satisfied, that you feel that you, you, know, you understand that world without necessarily being forced to read outside of the book to to get a better look at it. And, you know, we can. You, there's definitely a lot of spinoffs that I think came out of 
um, Battle World or Secret Wars that are interesting that do take that playground, but none of it felt like I had to. And I think just for the simple sake of it being so self-contained and so well done, I think for me it's it it does rank really high in the sense of like event comics. There's a reason it's our number three. There is. It's a really good book. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Man, what, what a peculiar top five. <laughs> I don't know, man. I think our top five is is darn solid because those are just excellent books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it's a little bit weird. <laughs> I was like, yeah. It's funny that the one that stands out the most is being like, this doesn't really seem like it belongs here. To me, is Spider-Man, the first Spider-Man story. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? To me, it's Miss Miss Marvel. Oh, that book is so good. <laughs> it, it really is, but like, if just at a glance, you're just like, really? That one? Yeah, that, that book means it, a lot. But yeah, it, it struck a lot to us, yeah. It's, it really, really did a really good job. So, so I'm super glad we read The Kingpin, because I... I like finding, I like using this podcast as an excuse to catch up on stories that I missed, but I also like it when we find hidden gems. That seems to be what our goal is for next time, because the stories that we've picked are stories that I have not heard of. We are going to read a six-issue Nick Fury miniseries from 2017. I, this did not even cross my radar at all. So that should be interesting to to read over. And then we're going back into the mid-2000s, a 2004 Starjammers series. Another six-issue series there. Starjammers of all characters. Uh, they don't even have like the Starjammer that everybody knows on the cover of issue one. There's no Corsair there. It's just Hepzibah is the skunk lady and the the... Big guy with the hammer, I think, has a name that I'm really not supposed to say. What? <laughs> Listen, I'll, I'm going to admit to this and probably regret it next time, but I uh, suggested these because I was looking at, like, which characters have we not read? And, like, I was like, ooh, what about, like, cosmic characters? And I was like, we've read some Guardians, that's, and we just read them. You know, they popped up in this story. What about the Star Jammer? Oh, yeah, Star Jammer, Space Pirates. Um, I don't know what character you're talking about. I was just like aware that like yeah Cyclops is dead has a spaceship and then uh saw that there was a Nick Fury comic like a solo one that was pretty recent um which uh which character are we talking about uh, I'm pretty sure his name is Chaod Oh right <laughs> yeah. All right I have heard that name before <laughs> <laughs>